Welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus, and I'm your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Today, a very, very powerful program. We uh, highly suggest you take notes. This is a topic, depression, that affects a lot of people, especially with the season coming up, uh, the darker nights, of the, clo- <laughs> the longer nights, shorter days, <laughs> more cold, less sunshine. This would be an obvious one where people are feeling the pinch of depression. But then there are many other reasons why. So we're going to talk about that today on this program with Dr. John Newstad and Dr. Steve Pachanik. And that we're here to educate, inform, and entertain. We're not here to prescribe. We're not here to diagnose. We're not here to treat. As always, we need to give that disclaimer because uh, there are those of you who like to jump on it and say, hey, you did something that you shouldn't do. So I want to make the disclaimer ahead of time in case uh, something slips of the tongue that you don't want to hear. But the bottom line is we're really careful about what we say. We're really here to, with the best intentions in mind when we talk about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. We highly recommend that you use the information of the program to further educate yourself, that we're here to plant a seed for you so that you really say, you know, this is something I need to study either for myself or for somebody who I'm very close to who needs this information. That is why we do these programs, just to lift the tip of the veil and to give you a, a, a hint of what is there to be researched. Dr. Neustadt is medical director of Montana Integrative Medicine. He is an internationally acclaimed clinician, author, and speaker. Dr. Neustadt has written more than 100 articles and is a regular contributor to the medical journal Integrative Medicine and the consumer publication Remedies Magazine. Dr. Neustadt wrote the books Thriving Through Dialysis with Dr. Jonathan Wright and also A Revolution in Health Through Nutritional Biochemistry. A Revolution in Health Through Nutritional Biochemistry with Dr. Steve Pachanik. In August 2008, just recently, Dr. Neustadt was voted best doctor among all physicians in the area in the annual Best of Bozeman survey. This is the first time a naturopathic physician has ever won this category. He won best doctor overall. Dr. Neustadt is also on the editorial advisory board of the Journal of Prolotherapy and Remedies magazine and an editor of the textbook Laboratory Evaluations for Integrative and Functional Medicine. In September 2006, Dr. Neustadt was invited to speak at the first European Conference on Anti-Aging Medicine in Vienna, Austria. That's one country I've never been at. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I was in Vienna. It was very nice. Were you in and out, or were you there for a week or so? Uh, I was. I was in and out, actually. Uh, that's not too. That's not so nice. Uh, <laughs> Chuck shakes his head. Chuck, good morning to you. Good morning, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Neustadt earned his naturopathic medical degree from Bastia University, where he was awarded the Founders Award for Academic and Clinical Excellence. If you want to talk to Dr. Neustadt during the week, you can call Montana Integrative Medicine, and that number is four zero six. 582-0034, 582-0034, and the website is montanaim.com, montanaintegrativemedicine.com, montanaim.com. Good morning, John. Good morning. Dr. Steve Pachanik, who was on the phone with us somewhere in time, somewhere in space. <laughs> Dr. Pachanik trained in psychiatry at Harvard 
and has both an MD from Cornell University Medical College and a PhD in International Relations from MIT. He was awarded the prestigious National Institute of Mental Health Career Fellowship in Psychiatry and was Director of International Activities for the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. Dr. Pachanik, in one year, received twice the Harvard Medical College Massachusetts Mental Health Center Harry C. Solomon Award for Innovative Research in Psychiatry. Dr. Pachanik has made major textbook and journal contributions, is a board-certified psychiatrist, and was a board examiner in psychiatry and neurology. Dr. Pachanik is chairman of the boards of Nutritional Biochemistry Incorporated and also NBI Testing and Consulting Corp., which he co-founded with Dr. Neustadt. His website is stevepachanik.com, P-I-E-C-Z-E-N-I-K.com, stevepachanik.com. Dr. Steve, good morning to you as well. Thanks for being here with us. Good morning to you, Jacobus. Good morning, Dr. Neustadt. Good morning, Bozeman, Montana. Well, we, <laughs> we appreciate you were willing to do this because I know you're on a very busy schedule, and I'm just glad that uh, we could have you on the phone with us as well. Jacobus, I would never miss your show. Well, that in is... the middle of a battle. Been <laughs> <laughs> in a recession, I would never miss your show. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. This was a very long introduction, and uh, you both, you doctors, deserve it highly. But today we're talking about a very interesting topic and a very powerful topic, depression, which I think we really, in the 400-plus shows that I've done, we've never really hit depression, and not in the way that we can do with both of you. You know, Dr. Pachanik, to start with you, in my opinion, and I would just want to ask your opinion, in my opinion, I think a lot of people are overprescribed and that they're overdiagnosed on the issue of depression, that they're being called depressed, while I think it might be just a situational thing and they're having these prescription drugs. Is therefore everybody somehow depressed? And do you see that we're overprescribed? Or what is your, what is your take on that? It's a good point, Jacobus. Depression is one of those psychological determinants of which we all have an element and should have. In other words, depression in and of itself is not a bad emotion to have. We think of depression as a terrible thing to have. Well, I feel depressed. I lost an uncle or I lost an aunt. So we have to look at depression as something as part of life. Without depression, we don't really understand the joys that we have. And it's also a natural emotion to the events that occur in life. For example, now we are in economic turmoil. Everybody understands that. Every, everybody understands we are in the political change and transformation. That causes a lot of anxiety. That causes a lot of uncertainty, which leads inevitably to depression. Now, there are different kinds of depressions. I don't want to go through the taxonomy of it in terms of the, of the uh, psychiatric textbook, but I want to just explain that depression within an individual is a good and is, a, is not a bad emotion. In other words, if we feel that we're losing our job or the job is imminently to be lost, that's a normal reaction. That doesn't mean you run to your doctor and you get an antidepressant or you get Lexapro. The problem is physicians, for the most part, other than uh, John and, and, and many actually good therapists in, in, in Bozeman, who are not only psychiatrists and physicians, MDs, they're very good psychotherapists who don't often prescribe drugs, 
who have to understand what is the reactive element of it, what is the organic element of it, in other words, what is inherent to the character, and what is, in fact, part of a long-standing disease that's genetically determined. Now, depression can be diagnosed by several factors. One, one feels totally without any feeling of uh, uh, ability to be empowered, a sense of helplessness, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of that there's nothing one can do, a losing weight, gaining weight, and at the same time, the energy and the ability to understand what the future is is totally blocked. You don't feel as if you can do anything. So instead what happens, we open up the refrigerator, we get something more to food, what we call comfort food, uh, cheeses, beer, and this is what's happening very commonly. Now, when that goes for too long and we're not able to pull out of that sense of hopelessness and helplessness, we have a trouble. And that's when somebody should go see a therapist or a physician who's trained in understanding depression. Unfortunately, on the extreme side, we don't have a lot of very good psychiatrists. And I'm not talking about Bozeman, I'm just talking in general. Why? Because when I was a board examiner, on a very simple question, when I interviewed the psychiatrist after eight years of experience for them and two years of what we call post-board exam. I asked a simple question, and the simple question is, what do you see in that patient? They usually normally examine a patient in the room and give me a differential diagnosis. In other words, I don't want a psychoanalytical diagnosis. I don't want behavioral. I don't want a drug therapy. Give me all the different types of approaches to depression that you can think of, and you've been taught. 60% could not answer a simple question. Give me a differential diagnosis. Now, that's a board examiner, and that's where I failed them. So what does that mean? That means in Bozeman, you have some people who understand how to treat depression with a certain amount of drugs. There's some people who understand that, that the combination of drugs and psychotherapy are important. And there's some people who understand that treating them with psychotherapy or insight, that maybe that's sufficient. So what we have in depression is really we have a scale it's a continuity scale from a normal reactive sense, that is, one loses one job at now. One loses the sense of belonging into a system where our own self-esteem, i.e., the job market or church or community, that means that we're losing everything, not as a result of something one did in this particular time, which is very, very severe, and I'm glad we're discussing depression, one really says to self, well, oneself, look, my job is what I did. Whether I'm a plumber, a physician, a teacher, I don't have that job. I was a teacher, and I was happy to be a teacher. I was a physician or a plumber. I was happy to be a plumber. That's not Joe the plumber. I'm talking about real jobs that really exist. When one loses that, there's a certain amount, and a correctly and, and appropriate, of depression that says, I don't know where I belong. And when that feeling that exists in your audience, which it has to exist, one says, okay, what do I do? I can't sleep. I have no appetite. I feel angry. I feel irritable. I strike out at my wife. I strike out at my children. In turn, the wife strikes out the children. So it becomes kind of a leveraged emotion, which is not very effective. At that point, an intervention would be very appropriate. 
Do you put the person immediately on drugs? No. The first thing that one should do is to really see a counselor. And there's some very good counseling services, whether it's in the, in, in the, the church, where you have trained pastoral counseling, and I'm an admirer of that, where some intervention can occur, and the pastor can say, or she or he can say, look, I think it's time for you to see an expert in mental health. Now, there are many experts in mental health. You have the social worker, you have the clinical psychologist, you have the therapist, you have the internist and the psychiatrist. The unfortunate part is that for too long, and this is where I come back to your issue, for too long, physicians in general, MDs, not only psychiatrists, but MDs who are, don't have the time, don't have the patience, and don't have what John Neustadt had, and that's why he's my physician, did not take the time and the patience to ask, tell me about what you're feeling. Tell me what happened to you recently. Tell me what's going on in your life. Most part, it's not because the physician doesn't care. Most doctors, whether it's in Bozeman or elsewhere, do not have the time and do not have the skill to really probe any further than a few minutes into a person's life and then order, give them an antidepressant, SSRI, an MAO inhibitor, or one of the uh, epinephrine derivatives or some of the older drugs. So that's where we get into a problem. On the same part, the patient, because of the Internet and shows like this, hopefully, they have to educate themselves as to what it is that they should have. If they come in and say, look, I need effects or I need Lexapro or Selexa, that's not the answer. What they have to begin to understand is what can I do for myself and where can somebody really help me and not panic immediately. In other words, there are things that are coming in so quickly and so fast that depression is a normal reaction to what's happening now in this depressive economy. It really mirrors itself. On the other hand, one has to seek out someone who will listen objectively. Often the spouse or the family or friend will act as the first buffer, but that's not enough. The real buffer and the real intervention is, has to be somebody who's objective, who can intercede and spend the necessary time to find out what, in fact, it is that bothers that individual uh, individual person and what precipitated that depression. And that's where we get into the problem of over-medication. There's not enough time for the physician. There's not enough training. And the simplest outcome and reimbursement is if I give you drugs. Steve mentioned some very important categories. When I think about depression and I'm sitting with patients in my clinic, there really is a, a tremendous difference in the approach if somebody comes in and it appears to be situational depression. Maybe they have some life uh, issues going on where feeling depressed is normal, but they may help, uh, be helped by counseling to help them understand how they can uh, empower themselves and, and get through that. But then Steve mentioned organic depression. There is depression caused by uh, neurotransmitter imbalances, and that's what the medications, uh, Prozac, Selexa, Wellbutrin, deal with. They work to increase, artificially increase, those neurotransmitters. Uh, undoubtedly, most or all of your listeners have heard of serotonin. That's uh, what Prozac works off of, that, that pathway. And also then it, there's the other pathway that looks at dopamine and epinephrine, but nobody has a deficiency of Prozac. 
Nobody has a deficiency of Wellbutrin. And I've said this before in your program, and if you weren't you know, sick last year or last month and you are now, then something's changed in your biochemistry. Mm-hmm. But we know it's very well defined in the, in the research what are the pathways to produce those neurotransmitters, and people can mm-hmm. become deficient in them. That's an organic cause. In fact, Steve mentioned, uh, Dr. Pachenik mentioned the food cravings. A lot of times people with depression will actually crave uh, sweets. And they, there's likely uh, some blood sugar control issues going on. But what happens with sugar, sugar stimulates a direct release of serotonin in the brain. So it actually elevates mood. It's biochemical. Uh, the food has a biochemical effect on the brain in modulating mood just briefly. And then what happens is you get that, that increase in mood and then your blood sugar drops again and the depression comes back. So it really comes down to very, very simply, um, does the body have the raw materials uh, to produce those hormones? And those raw materials uh, are uh, amino acids, tryptophan, phenylalanine, tyrosine, uh, minerals such as magnesium and iron and copper, And does it have the vitamins that it needs, Mm -hmm. Uh, the B-complex vitamins? B12, for example, deficiency can cause depression separate from those other pathways that I just mentioned. So looking at it a little more holistically, uh, you've got to take into account both should the patient, should the person be in counseling, would they benefit from counseling? And frequently I refer often for people to get counseling. Uh, But then would it be helpful for them to undergo a little bit more uh, rigorous uh, evaluation instead of just coming in and say, well, here's a medication uh, that's just going to treat a symptom. And that, by the way, the New England Journal of Medicine came out last year and said that these medications, Wilbutrin, Prozac, uh, were the negative studies on them were suppressed by the FDA. And that meant that meant that the effects, the positive effects of these medications was overstated by up to about 60, 70%. Wow. And so a lot of times people will be put on these medications and not get benefit. And a lot of times with longstanding depression, they start to beat themselves up and say, oh, it's me, it's my fault, and I'm not doing something right, and I'm not exercising enough. Exercise definitely releases endorphins, can increase uh, mood. Uh, very important when it comes to holistic approach to uh, to depression, getting out and just getting getting moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in some cases of longstanding depression, uh, exercise you know won't do that, won't won't mm-hmm. alter it. So they mm-hmm. go on medications, they try all these different because things. because of the neurological pathways that may have been uh, interfered with because of some type of uh, chemicals, uh, environmental toxins, other stresses in life. The exercise alone cannot undo that. You need to get your nutritional balance again, your nutritional biochemistry that you're talking about. Yes. You need to, you need to refill the depleted uh, nutrients that you... Uh, and I think we're going about to go to, to break, but let me just say, you point to something very important, and that is looking at, okay, well, exercise doesn't work. It really is, that's one aspect one tool in the that's shed. one tool the pharmacological approach is one symptom one drug and really for total health you've got to look a little broadly a little more holistically mm-hmm. and so what you're saying is exactly correct exercise nutrition counseling lifestyle testing if necessary to find out specifically what's going on and giving the body what it's lacking to do its job yes yeah, so it, it shows again that we have to be so careful every day what we do, because one action, 
one saying can ruin a life for a long time. So uh, we're going to be right back, folks. Stay tuned. We have another exciting two and a half hours to go. We'll be right back. Depression is really an umbrella term for different disorders, postpartum depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, uh, addictions, many addictions. We have issues with uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. There is a whole slew of so-called sub-symptoms, sub-categories, diagnoses that are all under the umbrella of depression. Because of that, I realize that today's program is only going to lift the veil on some of these issues. And I've asked Dr. Neustadt and Pachanik to maybe make this a series to do, to hit this topic from different angles because one of the commercials that we hear on the radio, on this radio station, says that over 15 million Americans are diagnosed as being depressed. Diagnosed. That means there's a lot of us who just hang on by a threat, or have symptoms, but we don't even know about it, have not been correctly diagnosed accordingly. So what I thought we'll do is, uh, well, there's so much we can talk about. So this today, we're, we're running through some concepts. I think it is important that uh, we get all the information in a clear way, so that as you are at home and you're taking notes, that you have a good understanding, a good understanding about what we're talking about. Very interesting concept, uh, Dr. Neustadt as well, uh, talking about the, 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 the biochemistry, the neurological imbalances that are going on in the brain that as the way you approach it with your testing and with your success that you've had shows that the reason why we're dealing with possible, one of the reasons reason that we deal with depression is because of an imbalance in nutrients in our brain. And the, the first thought that came to my mind is that we often say, uh, for example, even with supplements, dietary supplements, well, just because it works for your neighbor doesn't mean it works for you. That's and so yeah. when you look at society, just because society, diet that, that is proposed on TV, what we need to eat, what is good for us, what's not good for us, what is junk food, whatever, just because it may not have an effect on one person doesn't mean it will not have an effect on another person. So one treatment doesn't work for everybody. So as you're mentioning, that sadly enough, the approach is one symptom, one treatment. We cannot look at it this way. We have sometimes people and, and Dr. Pachanik, I, I hope you give me a background on this as well. To put people on medication, personally, I'm not against medication. But how do you apply it? What is the fault? What is the next step? How is the guidance for this person? Is somebody going to be on medication for 30 years? Or is there a recognition of an imbalance? Use medication as a temporary solution and then work with this individual to see where can we improve the situation with diet, lifestyle, etc. So after about six months, also, you can be taken off the medication. So I don't know who of you wants to go first. Well, let, let me start with the medical approach. The medical approach is exactly what you're saying. We have diagnostic categories that go into the, what we call the DSM-5, and there are various diagnostic categories. I will go into the bipolar. A very popular diagnosis now, and I say popular because we have had the same type of, phenomenology, that is, we have seen 
the 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 uh, up and down of what we would call a bipolar mood, where you go up and you feel manic, and then you get very depressed, and what we call cyclical, they go up and down. In the old days, we used to call that schizoaffective. So what happens is, in the diagnostic category, and you can't blame physicians for this, but you can blame the American Psychiatric, which I had belonged to, is that we created very sophisticated, a very detailed analysis of different types of depression as if we could treat those depressions in different ways. Now, it is true that each depression to each individual is very different. If you're cyclic, in other words, if you're very manic one day and the next day, you're very depressed or you're very irritable, and you see these mood swings. And often I'll hear it from a patient to say, you know, my husband isn't feeling right. On one day he's great, and then the next day he's yelling at me, and then he goes into a job, and then he can't fulfill the job. Or the, the husband will say, you know, my wife is exceedingly moody. She seems great. And then the next day, and so what you see are these patterns that can go on for several months, for several weeks, where you literally see like the uh, stock market. It goes up, the mood, and then it comes down. And what, some of it, it becomes very rapid on a daily basis, and some of it takes a few months, and then you are able to recognize the pattern that's much longer. For a physician to understand that and for a patient to recognize that what is happening is not just a unique pattern, but it's a pattern that's going on for several weeks and months, that means they have to go see a professional. And a professional who understands how to treat bipolar by necessity, now, this is before John and I got into the business of this. By necessity, they're obligated to give antidepressants. They're obligated to give lithium, where we don't have a deficiency of lithium. And then we're, treat, we're obligated to give the best type of uh, medical or pharmaceutical treatment that we know how to do. For example, every physician knows this and a psychiatrist knows the McNaughton rule, that is, if you're a danger to yourself, a danger to others, or with a potential of suicide, you have the obligation as a physician to incarcerate the person against their own will. Unfortunately, not every state follows that, and unfortunately Montana does not have a psychiatric or mental health division where we can use psychiatric hospitals. Let me just say something. This is not an attack against the political system, but we have a more sophisticated correctional division. The Montana prison system is far more advanced than we have a psychiatric system. And 20 to 30 percent of the inmates of the correctional system in Montana are officially diagnosed as mental health patients. So in Montana, we have a system that is incarcerating mental health patients when, in fact, the officers there and the people in charge know very well they do not belong there, belong in a psychiatric hospital. But we do not have a chief of psychiatry. So let me go back to the issue. The second part is postpartum depression, a very, very dangerous type of depression, because for reasons that go into the, uh, uh, the metabolic and the hormones, when you start having a, a, a surge of estrogen and progesterone during the pregnancy, and suddenly that surge diminishes, and then you deliver a baby. There are many issues that are involved biochemically, which changes your entire biochemical balance. Number two, the notion of having created a baby, and then that baby is no longer yours, but it's separated from you. 
The third part where the baby, you can't necessarily take care of that baby and your self-worth has gone down, that is a serious problem, postpartum depression. It's not something that we take very lightly. In many cases, one of the hardest treatments we've ever had to do was in postpartum depression and in male alcoholics, and I'll explain it to you. In postpartum depression, and this may sound very, very um, evil or it sounds gross, what I'm about to tell you, one of the most effective ways to deal with postpartum depression, and I've dealt with it for years, is through electric shock therapy. Now, I know people think it's barbaric, and I myself don't like to do it, but I do it because we have had history of being very effective, and for whatever reason, and for whatever reason in changing the biochemical elements within the brain, whether it's a cognitive system or whether it's a pathway, neurohormonal pathway, whether it's a chemical alignment, I can't explain it to you. It's been done since the 1930s. But we know for whatever reason, it's one of the few hopes that we have to pull someone out of postpartum depression where they literally are suicidal. And this is one of the problems that we have in psychiatry because we work at the genotypic level or the phenotypic level. We don't work on the biochemical level, even though we do talk about neurohormones. We don't really understand what John and I have been doing. So at that level, you have the bipolar system, you have the postpartum depression, you have what we used to call schizoaffective, people who basically have emotional disturbances and thought disturbances that keep walking around. Then we have a, a very nice term, which is called the homeless. And now, I was involved in a system where the so-called homeless were really schizophrenics. And during the Kennedy and Johnson administration, and even the next administration, we released those schizophrenics. Those are people who have talked to themselves are not totally able to make conclusions that correspond to reality, but have an internal reality where they see hallucinations, visual hallucinations, they have neologisms, they're all types of symptoms and criteria that we know about schizophrenic and inappropriate affect. And we were forced as psychiatrists by the legal system, I'm not talking the legal system of Bozeman, I'm talking the legal system of the federal government, to discharge these schizophrenics. I had a hospital of 4,000 schizophrenics and put them into the community. And that was then called the homeless, the people who have nowhere to go. They have no way to help themselves. But thanks to the voluntary organizations of Bozeman and elsewhere in the United States, they were taken care of. But you'll see them often walking in the streets, talking to themselves. More often than not, they're not dangerous. So that's what we call the chronic schizophrenics. But because of the law superseding medical capability and medical power, they were forced, we were forced to release them on grounds that it was a violation of the First Amendment. So what I'm saying to you is we have all these various diagnostic categories. It doesn't matter whether it's specific or not, but basically there are biochemical elements where we can go in for two to three months on a bipolar issue. We can regulate the individual through dilantin or lithium, or various elements where a physician who's really trained in this, a psychopharmacologist, understands this exceedingly well and can titrate, titrate meaning that they can literally lower the amount of the drug so that it comes over a period of weeks, not just suddenly overnight, to put them into a normal maintenance stability program, and you don't have to be on it for life. 
Mm. In the biochemical approach that John and I do, but John specifically does in his clinic, we don't go at the genotypic level, the phenotypic level. He goes right down to the nutritional biochemical level, and that becomes much more effective. But psychiatry has not recognized that because they really do not understand the Krebs cycle. They do not understand the pathways by which you can intervene through nutritional biochemistry and change those elements. Now, can that be true of postpartum depression? That depends. Again, each one of the individuals with a different diagnosis are treated in a specific way, but the test that John has and uses delineate exactly what that individual has on the biochemical pathways. In other words, if you're bipolar, technically people have never said you can't really treat somebody with nutritional biochemistry. Well, John's program in NBI has shown that you can. You can treat people with bipolar uh, depression, whether it's the, the uh, manic form or the depressive form. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is because we see, John sees a pattern that's consistent with what he knows he can intervene with using natural organic substances. Now, that doesn't mean he won't use a necessary antidepressant or a necessary anti-pharmaceutical uh, product, but it means that he prevails by using and understanding pathways that physicians and psychiatrists like myself were not trained in. So that's where we're going to. But also remember, the overall situation in Montana is not good for mental health. It's not an indictment of Schweitz or anybody else. It's an indictment of a state that does not see mental health as a priority, mm. where we have more prisons that are very effective in terms of rehabilitation. But if you ask any one of the correctional uh, senior officials who are very effective, they'll tell you most of these prisoners have mental problems. They're either addicts, depressed, schizophrenic, or they're, they're basically uh, acting out. And that's not necessarily a correctional uh, criminal problem. It's a psychiatric problem. Montana actually has uh, one of the higher suicide rates in the country. And part of the reason is because it is a rural state and there is such poor access to health care in uh, many rural communities. Bozeman is very fortunate to have uh, a lot of uh, health professionals here. And the Gallatin Valley is fortunate to have uh, uh, all of us here working on this issue, but folks that are out on uh, ranches uh, in more rural settings, not in towns, uh, are much more isolated. And part of it is really having access uh, to somebody who can look at you, talk to you, and say, look, I can help you. You are depressed. Let me get you on some medication. That may help. Let's start counseling. Uh, and that may help, but but give a support. The support system in a lot of these rural communities is just lacking. From a more holistic approach, instead of just you know one drug, one symptom, looking at using medications, which are appropriate uh, at times, and counseling as well, very important. What I look at in my clinic, and the success rate with depression is phenomenal. Literally every 
every couple of weeks, I'm starting to get somebody off of their antidepressants. Mm. I see a lot of depression through my, my clinic. And one thing, if you are on antidepressants, please do not just stop them cold turkey. No, it's very dangerous. You can get a rebound effect. It can exacerbate your depression. You have to wean yourself off of them very, uh, uh, you know, it, with a graduated approach. But from a more holistic approach in terms of how I you know, conceptualize and look at it and what the research shows are four basic categories. One is hormonal mm. and uh, hypothyroidism, for example. If you have low thyroid, it causes depression. Uh, then lifestyle issues. Uh, you know, if you have any addictions, which are biochemical as well, but uh, lifestyle issues, staying up, uh, partying, uh, not getting enough sleep, uh, or having insomnia itself, you know, not because you're out doing things, but a lot of people with depression have insomnia as well. And so if you're exhausted because of that, well, you're going to be depressed. Uh, pain also, if you're in chronic pain, chronic pain causes depression. Uh, def any deficiencies in, in various categories can cause depression, iron deficiency, for example, and up to 20% of women, uh, menstruating women, are deficient in iron, which can cause depression, well-documented. Omega-3 fatty acid deficiencies are associated with depression. Amino acids, like I mentioned before, vitamins, uh, other minerals besides iron, such as magnesium, uh, also mm -hmm. uh, can cause and contribute to depression. Uh, and then basic dietary issues, blood sugar control issues. If you're not giving your body the raw materials through diet uh, to actually function properly, regulate blood sugar properly, you're going to get cycles in mood. Uh, one very sensitive symptom of poor blood sugar control, uh, actually two sensitive symptoms. One is a lot of times early afternoon people, a couple hours after eating, they'll feel uh, their energy drop precipitously. Uh, they'll get a little bit what's called brain fog where they feel like they're not processing information quick enough. Frequently that can be due to poor blood sugar control and they'll have sugar cravings. They'll reach for sugar, like I mentioned before, that'll increase blood sugar, but it'll also increase serotonin secretion. However, uh, it's a temporary fix. The best thing to reach for is actually protein to regulate blood sugar, a good protein snack. But also if you're waking up in the middle of the night, I always ask patients, are you having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep? If it's falling asleep, it tends to be anxiety. There's just stuff going on in the head. People are anxious. Mm -hmm. But if they're waking up in the middle of the night, not to urinate, but if they're waking up for no apparent reason, two, three, four in the morning, that in many cases is a blood sugar issue. Your blood sugar drops, your body starts secreting epinephrine, cortisol to raise the blood sugar level, and it wakes people up. So what I recommend is people just very simply try and experiment. Eat 5 to 10 grams of protein before bed as food, not as a powder or dietary supplement, but a piece of chicken, a handful of nuts, a hard-boiled egg, something like that. Oh. And frequently that'll, that'll, that'll stem through that. That'll work just fine. Mm. Uh, for sleep, there are also other dietary supplements that can be very helpful. Uh, like I believe, magnesium. Magnesium uh, is very popular. So now I understand uh, when you talk about serotonin levels and that magnesium is very important in that uh, in, in the whole conversion of different hormones to other hormones, mm -hmm. that that is one of the reasons then why magnesium is so effective. I always tell people magnesium helps to relax muscles, so you are more relaxed. You don't tense up. You yeah. don't get the a Charlie lot of people horses. with restless leg syndrome actually have a magnesium deficiency. Uh -huh. But it can also be an uh, an anxiety emotional thing when there is enough magnesium because magnesium is very important in the brain. That's true. That's huh, true. Okay. Now, if also uh, there's there there are good formulas out there. I know you have the formula night night rest yeah. formula in mm -hmm. uh, at your store yeah. at uh, Jacobus. 
And I often will recommend that to people who are having difficulty sleeping. Again, hopefully short-term just to help them sleep while we try and identify the underlying causes and fix yeah. it. Yeah. Um, postpartum depression is very interesting. What happens when uh, you are pregnant, when women are pregnant, the growing baby really has such a high nutrient demand. I mean, you're talking from a two cells coming together and a sperm and an egg to dividing and dividing and dividing over nine months, 10 months to create a whole human being. That is a tremendous, tremendous amount of energy that's mm -hmm. required by that growing mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. tremendous amount of nutrients that are required. And it's very well documented in the research how uh, it, um, pregnancy actually increases your risk for m deficiencies of many things because the baby is just taking all those nutrients out of your body and concentrating them. And perhaps we can talk. Yeah, about that we'll a talk about it more when we come back. I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm just sitting over here. It is like a college course that I'm getting from do both Dr. Pachanik and Dr. Neustadt. We're going to be right back. One thing I was just talking to Dr. Steve about is we are trained in this society to trust a doctor. It's almost like if you cannot trust a doctor, who can you trust? Because these people are trained. They've gone to school for eight plus years. They've done the residency. They are just ready. They got all the literature that they need to know for their profession. They have all these journals that we hear about in the news. This journal said this. This journal said that. It seems like these people are just weaponed to the teeth, so to say, with knowledge about human health. And somehow as we go as patients, as individuals, to find answers from, especially at this point, conventional medicine, we are walking into the waiting room and then, first of all, we have to wait. And Chuck over here has mentioned before that he would have to go and sometimes wait two hours before he would get attended to. Then he goes in and he has seven minutes with the physician because the waiting room is full and they will try to get you in and out. So you're willing to wait to get answers from this person who is highly trained, who can give you information about you, but you just don't have enough time when you go in the office to really tell that person what you are going through. All you can do is mention a symptom, and all of a sudden they say, oh, this is what you need. And all you start writing, and you back out. And here you walk in this room with all these high hopes, and you walk out, and you feel so deflated because you have to put your shoes back on, walk out on the street, and go back to the life that you knew before you walked into this waiting room. And therefore, people are given medication or treatments or diagnosis that may not always be correct. And there are so many doctors. So it is hard to say that every doctor would have the exact same opinion. And because of that, so many people become confused. Like, should I get a second opinion? So you spend another 125 plus bucks for a visit. You wait again in the waiting room. Maybe this doctor has a different diagnosis. And so we are sent from doctor to specialist to doctor to specialist with these high hopes that this individual knows what you need to become a better person or to feel better and to be able to function in society, to function in your marriage, to function at school, to function at your job, to become old as you can possibly, as old as you can possibly be and as healthy as you can possibly be. And you find out that there is not enough time spent 
And to me, that is the frustrating thing in society today, especially in the healthcare, that is we don't get the answers, the true answers. And so because of what we do get, we take that answer as the truth because the person we went to is the expert. That is the person who is highly trained and should know this stuff better than I do. But how come I don't feel better when I walk out? How come I don't feel better seven days later? Is the diagnosis wrong or am I really screwed up? And I think that is a confusing thing for a lot of us. Why do we not get better? And and so, I don't know, I, I uh, 522 talk, if you have a comment or a question about it, give us a call, 522 uh, Dr. Steve, any further comments about what I just mentioned? Well, I think what you're saying is exceedingly right. It is a correct impression, and it implies a much more serious indictment of our field in psychiatry and in medicine. I cannot argue with that. I left the American Psychiatric Association 10, 15 years ago. I refused to continue to be a board examiner for the following reasons. The people we were bringing in, bringing in as board-certified psychiatrists were not qualified. They were not qualified in terms of understanding the different dynamics and theories. Either they were trained in only psychopharmacology or they were only trained in analytical theory. So when you come to see a psychiatrist in and of itself, that psychiatrist may or may not be good. You have no way of knowing it. The only thing you know as a patient is, number one, you have to feel that if you have an appointment at 9 o'clock and you're waiting there to 10 o'clock, that's not your doctor. In other words, what I'm coming back to say to the audience is, you are the consumer. We work for you. You don't work for us. Mm-hmm. Number two, you leave. And you explain to the nurse that this is not appropriate. And I know it's painful, but you still are the consumer. Number three, you look around and you see perhaps it's not a psychiatrist. Perhaps it's a psychotherapist. Perhaps it's John Newstead is not listed as a psychiatrist or psychotherapist, yet he has done more in biochemical improvement of depression by chance, as he explained it to you. This is not an advertisement for John, but it shows you that, in effect, the responsibility for one's own care goes to oneself. And that doesn't mitigate the fact that we have failed in medicine. My daughter's a fourth-year medical student at a medical school, which is named after Moses' mountain. I can't say it, but it's like Mount Sinai. And her training is absolutely a disaster. This is a young woman who went to Stanford, created her own program, Holistic Medicine, and they can't get a psychiatrist to head up the program, and they've lost three psychiatrists, and the training they received. So I want you to understand what this is about. This is an indictment of the medical school system and the medical system, so people understand why it is when we come out of medical school, we are beaten down, We are not trained to do psychiatry. We are trained. The psychiatrist, most people have to understand this in the audience, psychiatrist is the lowest of the low. We're below anything you can imagine. We're the lowest paid. We were the lowest trained. And we were the ones who had to get the most responsibility by using our mental acumen, our training, and yet we were were paying by the hour. We were the taxi drivers of medicine. Whereas you go in for a, 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 a breast enhancement 
or plastic surgery, it becomes an obscene, an obscene travesty of medicine because there you're paying thousands of dollars. You think you're going to look better with breasts that point to the God, to the heaven and a lips that look like Angelina, but you're not going to feel better. And the doctor who's going to do that has no idea of psychological dimension. Most physicians, over 80%, have had one course in psychiatry and really know nothing, absolutely nothing, about treating depression, dealing with patients on a consultative, dyadic relationship, developing trust. And if I can, and if most I can people who, interject, no, no courses on nutrition. None. I have had 18 to 20 years of experience. I never heard the word nutrition until I saw John Newstead. Mm. Now, the key point is not just nutrition. Forget nutrition, forget drugs and all. The training that we go through, as my daughter's now going through, is even worse. Before I was trained to use a stethoscope, by the time a patient walked into my room, I could tell within three minutes what the patient had and what they didn't have. And I gave them the time in order to listen to what they had and to also listen to what they didn't say to me. Most physicians are never trained that way. Uh They don't hear the silence of the desperation. They don't hear the silence of what's not said. They don't know how to ask the question, what is really bothering you? Why did you come today? The answer will often be, well, you know, I didn't feel well and I had a headache. Well, that headache has something to do with an underlying depression of the marriage of a man who may be an alcoholic. But the physician doesn't care. Why? Because the system is such in the medical health care system where the physician is being paid by the minute, by the not the outcome, but by the number of patients that come in. So no wonder a patient comes in, they're frustrated, and they go out and they're treated with a name, a diagnosis. They're classified and stratified in a system which has no understanding of what they have. So where do they go? The second place they go to is they go to friends, and they said, well, you know, I, I, I wasn't happy. Well, one friend said, yeah, but he was good for me because, you know, my pimples went away or I felt better. But the second part is, where do I go else? And what's interesting is, MIM and NBI have what we call the the medicine of desperation. What happens to many patients, and this is where the beauty of Montana and Bozeman comes in, and the inherent talent of the people who are individualists, unlike possibly the Northeast. People in Montana, and I've seen this repeatedly, go on the Internet, and they say there has to be something better than seeing 14 doctors, three MRIs, four CAT scans, and feeling just the way Jacobus told me, which I feel disastrous. And I've got nothing more than 92 pills. When you see John Neustadt, he looks at you, he sits down with you. So the second thing you look for is somebody who's empathic, not sympathetic, but is empathic. I don't want to hear the words as a patient, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that your marriage is no good. No, no. I want to hear, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you in the pain that's happening to me, even though I may not articulate the pain? So a physician is not taught to evaluate the affect, emotion. He's not taught to understand the underlying dynamics of a patient who comes in with sunglasses and sits down there, but there's tears behind those sunglasses, and the patient is saying to the doctor, everything is great and he doesn't understand there's an incongruence between the sunglasses 
and the statement, things are great. So he figures, oh, okay, well, if things are great, let me give you a little bit of this Alexa or Selexa or Fexa, and then you go out. Very few physicians are ever trained in psychodynamics, including psychiatrists. Psychiatry now has become what we call sad to glad, one to ten. You feel sad? On the scale of one to ten, how sad do you feel? Four? Okay, I'll give you this, Lexapro, and maybe in a combination with something else. None of them. This is why I failed over 60% of the board exam. I can go through your entire medical system right now in the state of Montana, and I will guarantee you, as a board examiner, that you have board examined physicians there, that I will bust. 30 to 40% of all those doctors, just on the basis of their diagnosis, no matter what their specialty is. One of the reasons is because you don't have a board of certification in Montana that's effective. You don't have joint accreditation. There's no standardization. We don't have a mental health system. So what's happened is in Montana, we all went out and said, we'll take care of ourselves no matter what. The good news is the third part is that the patients come in and they say, you know, for many parts, I like this guy about biochemical nutrition. I don't know what it is, but I know in my family that people have been helped by alternative dietary supplements. And then we get to the problem. You meet somebody right away in the medical system, and the minute you feel that that person can help you, you already have a 40% chance of being improved because they're there to help you. But you know where most of the students go in, in medical school? They go into surgery because they don't have to deal with the patient. They right. go into anesthesiology because they don't have to talk to the patient. Or dentistry. The big <laughs> field now is invasive radiology because you don't see the patient. You just put in some dye and you make sure, and then you don't have to talk to them. Yeah. You go into dermatology because all you have to do is three minutes. If it's wet, you dry it. If it's dry, you wet it, and the rest you put steroids on. <laughs> Fifth one, well, but this is true. Yeah, you I know, but the way you say it is funny. But I know, but it's not. It's funny, but it's pathetic. And then you've got all these plastic surgeons. Look at the number of plastic surgeons you have in Bozeman. It is pathetic. Yeah. So instead of looking at the issues, why does a woman or a man have to have a nose job or a breast job? That's not what these doctors were trained for. They were trained for reconstruction surgery. Yes. But every one of these doctors know they have a $500,000 debt. I don't blame them. And in turn, they've got to get rid of that debt by making a lot of money. Well, in plastic surgery, you get paid by the, uh, you get paid up front. They're not going to ask you about the dynamics of your family, what you look like. They're going to say, did you like this breast? Did you like the nose? Did you like your face? And that's a lot easier to deal with than saying to somebody, okay, What's the issue that you can't do for yourself? What has been this pattern in your life? Now, having said all that, why we have failed and why I think, um, this is not political, why I think national medicine will even fail more, because there's no way you can retain physicians who are even highly trained like myself to work in a VA system that's already failed. It's a modified, and this is not an indictment of politicians, it's just understand, making sure that politicians whom I know and I've treated, do not understand how, what it's like to make a living, pay $120 to go to health care, and instead they pay $10 to go to Naval Bethesda Hospital or Walter Reed and they get a colonoscopy. Yeah. So now we go back to the last point. Where do we get most of our health? In Montana, it's very interesting, but it's true around the world. The National Institute of Mental Health did studies 20, 30 years ago. 
about 40 to 50 percent of the most effective therapists are guys like Jacobus, you, sir, because people will come into your store. You have the first thing you look at, which is empathy, not sympathy. You understand them. Secondly, you know how to listen to them. You learn how to listen to the problem. And thirdly, you don't charge them by the minute and by the hour, and you say, listen, let's try what's the best for you, and why don't you come back to see me? Mm. Another part of petitions, these are the dietary shops, what I call the intelligent disenfranchised. In other words, the brilliant people like yourself who are all over Utah, Montana, Wyoming, everywhere in the West, particularly, and they're women and men who run these shops, and they're acting as physicians. Secondly, you go to your bartender. A lot of people go to bars because yeah. in an effective bar, the bartender is listening to you. He's saying, well, how's, what's the problem, Joe? What's been going on? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that about your wife. So people are looking for different ways to relate to somebody the problems that they have while at the same time masking their problem. How do you mask the problem? And you said a very brilliant thing, Jacobus. Depression doesn't come with a big sign saying D-E-P-R-E-S-S-I-O-N. It comes so masked that most physicians, 99%, have no idea what it looks like. In children, it comes out in acting out, in drugs, depersonalized sex. The amount of sex that's going on in Bozeman, Montana, on a dehumanized basis, despite all the Christian intervention and the church intervention, which is well-intentioned, is not effective. Because what's happening is the peer group pressure of underlying depression does not deal with the real issues of adolescence, the hormonal changes of adolescence, the biological and the intellectual changes, the emotional changes, and instead it bypasses it through drugs and alcohol. How many times have I heard in Bozeman, oh, this is my third wife, you know, my first wife was a teenage kid, the second wife, this is my third wife, I finally found the right person. Well, I'm not sure that's true. The second thing is you go to college, university, hard-working students, Montana State University. Maybe the student health center is good. Maybe it's not so good. And, you know, quite frankly, student health centers have to be the backup system for a huge, huge number of students and people. When you think you've got 20,000, 30,000 students and a lot of them have mental problems, you need a staff that really has to be able to handle it. I turned out to be at MIT in the student health system where you can really intervene at a point without going through a lot of therapy or giving any drugs and explaining to students what are the normative behaviors. Some students come in and say, you know, I really don't know whether I'm a homosexual or heterosexual, and they may have never had any experience and either in terms of relating to women. And so they self-diagnose. So what happens is people are avoiding dealing with their own problems. The system has failed them collectively, both in the training, in the implementation of our skills, and in the fact that we don't have those skills. Most orthopedic surgeons and internists really have very little knowledge of psychiatry, consultative medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't care what they call themselves. Mm -hmm. What they're interested in is getting the money, getting the person in and out, and I don't blame them because the system has forced us that way, but at the same time, I don't applaud them. So it comes back to the individual to say, okay, in Bozeman, Montana, you're very fortunate because you have a Jacobus. You have other stores where people are willing to take the time and say, okay, what is it that you're not feeling good about? 
whether it's right or wrong, you're not going to be in the pantheon of medicine, but on the other hand, the pantheon of medicine is a disaster. Medicine has become like Goldman Sachs. It has become like Bear Stearns. We have screwed ourselves to the wall. We have literally screwed ourselves to the wall, and now we're, 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 we've destroyed ourselves, both in our practices and in the fact that our students are no longer qualified to treat, and they will go into specialties. 522 talk. Go, go ahead. The last hope is quite, fact, quite really the political part. Without the Montanans effectively getting together and insisting on an effective mental health system, which gives them community health services, which gives them psychiatric hospitals, which runs from the governor's office with a chief psychiatrist, we cannot address the problems of mental health in the state of Montana. We can only do piecemeal. And the John Newsteads of the world can only put a, no offense to the Dutch, it's a finger in the, in the dike before <laughs> it starts to flood. So the issue is much bigger. But from the personal point of view, I always say, listen, first you have to learn about yourself, take care, and have some hope that you will find a resolution, not often in the name of a physician. It can be a pastoral counselor. It can be your hairdresser. I mean, I hate to say that. It can be the nutritional biochemist. It can be Jacobus. It can be some people who are intuitively and born to really understand how to treat others. Mm. But we have not certified them by the American Psychiatric. Yeah, interesting. I uh, I know you said uh, during, the commer- during the break earlier, you said uh, it's, it's got to go back to the people and not to the medical profession. Very no, no, we failed. We, yeah. we, we have failed. We are the investment bankers of the 21st century. Yeah. We're going to t- we're going to, Dr. Steve, we're going to take a short break here. Folks, uh, we'll be right back. Yes, I, could, I just uh, would like to clarify so there's no ambiguity. Uh, Dr. Pachanek is not involved in the clinic. Okay, uh, sorry. It's just myself there uh, seeing patients. He and I have created two other companies, though. One is NBI Testing and Consulting Corporation, and where Dr. Pachenik and I have integrated our two fields and really look to combine, combine in an integrative fas- fashion is uh, we will look at, um, uh, I will take all identifying data off of uh, some test results and cases, and he and I will anonymously review certain things uh, to get his into input on that. And in terms of looking at outcomes, he and I discuss that and look to discuss how is the best way from an integrative fashion. Now, he's not seeing the patients. I'm the only one seeing the patients. I'm the only one doing the clinical work and the analysis and treating patients here. Uh, But his input, as people have heard in his expertise that he shared, some of which uh, he shared with us today on the radio, is really uh, invaluable uh, in terms of uh, the knowledge that he brings to uh, being the chairman of MBI testing and uh, nutritional biochemistry. Okay. Well, thank you very much for clearing that up. Yes, sir. Let me. I, I want to say something to the audience so that they understand that what I was saying before, when when everybody's frustrated and going to a physician, as you said, and then eventually I said it really boils down to oneself, not, not because it's just it's it's a medicine of desperation. If this happened to me. This is not something I'm talking out of Harvard or some theory. I'm a very practical individual. For years, I suffered from mature onset bronchitis and, and other problems. And I, I went from my doctor, an MD, not here, not in Bozeman, somewhere else trained at Harvard, everywhere else that I trained, and, and it was just 
not good. I wasn't feeling well. I couldn't breathe well. I felt fatigued. I couldn't sleep. I was exhausted. And all I got was the same palaver that I would hear from every physician that I knew and trained or had trained with me, which was take, you know, an antidepressant, uh, take aminophilin, uh, take your antibiotics, and it'll get better someday. You know, you just have to live away from cats, away from dogs, and the only thing they didn't say, away from people. Mm. And I said, this is absurd. I mean, I, I literally was so frustrated with, every, what, with everybody. I was spending thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, even though I'm an MD, I want everybody to understand, my insurance costs are 24000 a year. Now, you understand? That means personal insurance. That means I'm not really covered for everything that anybody else is. And I felt disgusted with my own profession. I knew they were bullshitting me. Excuse me, I can't use it on the air, but that's what I'm saying. I knew they didn't know what they were talking about. By chance, it was on Sweet Pea Day a couple of years ago that I met this young man who came out of a different school that I'd never heard of last year. But the point was, he said to me, well, you know, I have a feeling you're deficient in copper. I eliminated, I, I just put that in the back of my head and I said, what, is, what does copper have to do with what I'm feeling? I can't breathe. I'm exhausted. I can't sleep. I get depressed. And out of desperation, after having gone to some of the top doctors at Cornell, Harvard, all of that stuff, costing me thirty, forty thousand dollars wow. with the same nonsense of prednisone, the same nonsense of uh, inhalers, and the same nonsense of pharmaceutical drugs, I went to John and I said, "John, work me up." He looked at me. First thing he said is, "What are you taking?" And I brought with me all my bottles. Bottles of this, bottles of zinc, bottles of, you know, I'm no more educated before I saw John than any normal individual. I went to GNC, another junk store. I went to Vitamin Shop, another junk store. And I bought up at CVS all the junk that they had that would say this antioxidant. Why? Because I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. But here I had all these degrees from Harvard and Cornell. And I said, you know what, I'm going to take care of myself with antioxidants. He looked at me and he said, how much zinc did you take? I said, I don't know how much zinc. What are you talking about? He pulled out my bottle of zinc and he said, you're taking too much zinc, you suppress your copper. You think at that moment I knew what he was talking about? And here I'd been through biochemistry, I had no idea. And then he explained to me, showed me the pathway. He showed me that zinc suppresses copper. Copper, in turn, suppresses the transformation from norepinephrine. Epinephrine is a bronchodilator. He corrected this all. He spent one and a half hours with me. Not because I was special, but that was his normal uh, uh, time. He was empathic. He was firm. He understood what it is that I needed. I took a risk. And when he cured me, the next day I said, Doctor... You are my physician. Probably the first time an MD in the history of MD said, you as an MD are going to be my physician. I don't care what any other MD says. And we started a company because I was in the business of starting companies. My point to the audience is I'm no different from you. Just because I have all those degrees and I seem smarter or smart ass, that's not different from you. I was desperate. I was exhausted. I was disgusted with my friends who were doctors who really gave me nothing more than palaver. I was disgusted with my medical field that didn't know anything more than other than the religion that we were inculcated with. 
And I found, because I was just open to this one word, and I remembered it in my head, that there was somebody out there who thought differently from me. And that's the key that the audience has to understand. Open your mind. Take the time to research. Take the time to look at something different. It's not an advertisement for John, but it is John. And take the time to appreciate that there may be somebody out there who's thinking out of the box differently from anything I had ever seen. And quite frankly, I thought this was genius. Because once he explained to me the biochemical pathways, and if you look at his office, you know this, Jacobus. I mean, there was so many Krebs cycles. I said, wait a minute, I took that course. He said, but do you use it? I said, no. Then he asked me a question that was very interesting, and this answers your questions, why we MDs are in trouble. What is your philosophy in medicine? I said, what do you mean what's our philosophy in medicine? Our philosophy in medicine is above all, do no harm. I said, but that's not a philosophy. I said, well... That frustrated me. I couldn't come up with it. And then he gave me the philosophy of naturopathic medicine. But it was his medicine, what we call naturopathic, was medicine that my father, 50 years ago, was trained in France and in Europe. What happened is the American Medical Association hijacked the field away from what was happening in Europe with all the prolotherapy, with vitamin B12, and we went into, quote, science-based evidence, which is bullshit. It's all it is is another way for the pharmaceutical companies and NIH and others who really don't know the dynamics of preventative medicine to, to maintain themselves. Now, I don't want to get too far afield, but my point was this. I was the audience, and I still am the audience, and I had my own desperation. Now, mind you, with all my degrees, it became even more frustrating because I had to look at my friends and say, you don't know what you're talking about. This is not better. More steroids is not better. Going into bronchodilator was not better. And when I went to John, it improved. And you know how bad it is now? It's so frustrating that when we handed our book and there were other friends of mine who had the same condition, they don't want to hear it. They would rather die and learn that they can take a copper supplement, or get rid of the zinc, or take the test. And that's how bad our, our mindset is. Yeah, we no. have become a religion, a cult, not a, not, a, not, a, not a science with basically creative elements to it. So that's my personal story that I think your audience should understand. I am no different from you. Yeah. But I was open, I took the time, and out of desperation, I found John. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is uh, that's a great point uh, to say that. I I, um, I realize that great books have been written by people who tell their own story, and it is those stories that inspire us to keep going. I think, you know, we might differ in opinion, but I still believe that this is the greatest nation on the planet, and that there are wonderful people living over here that form the core of the quality of this nation. Not everybody has used that to the benefit of this nation. They have used their talents for the wrong reasons, but that would make more a political show. But I feel that things like personal stories that people share become inspirations for others because they recognize themselves in the struggles and they realize the, the possible potential. I had a talk yesterday, Dr. Steve, with... Uh, 
the gentleman who called me up and I'd forgotten to call him back for a week. He called last week and I got busy. I said, I need to call you back. And I called him back and he is dealing with depression because he is in so much pain. And he has a lot of lower back pain. He because of an injury he had. He has been. Uh, he's he is now. Uh, uh, you call it disabled. He cannot work anymore. But he can move. But he cannot do the work that he used to do. He doesn't live in this town. He lives in Portland. He called me from Portland, and then I called him back. But he was saying, I said, what do you think came first? Because he said he is depressed. He's taking all kind of medication. He's taking pain medication, uh, morphine, and all kinds of stuff in order to even do it. And he called me up with the main reason was, what do you have in your store? When I was in Bozeman, I was in your store. And he said, what do you have for male enhancement, for sexual energy? Because since I have been on these antidepressants and these pain medication, there is absolutely no desire. There is absolutely no capability of doing it. He said, I don't want to do Viagra or Cialis or any of those. He said, what is going on with me? And I had a long talk with him actually on the phone for about 45 minutes. And I asked him why he felt he was depressed, if it was because of the pain or was it because of something else? And I said, he said, how long have you been depressed? And he was actually able to say that it was when he was about 32 years old. And I, I think he is in his late 40s or early 50s I didn't ask for his age but he said when he was 32 and so um, I told him that that means that he was probably not born depressed so when we talk about biological depression like Dr. Uh, Dr. Neustadt is talking about I don't think that was the case something happened in his life that caused a trauma so I asked him what happened and he said that he was working at a job in this case the postal office which I know that <laughs> we have heard that in the past but he was so bullied by his colleagues that he got his self-esteem went down the bottom, through the bottom. He was just so, he became so depressed and so low self-esteem that eventually he just quit the work. And that got him depressed. And then he re-injured himself. And so now he had the back pain. And, and so you look at what society can do to one person or a job can do to one person even though it is a unique situation for him, we see that it happens more often in society. Does it make the whole country bad? No. But you look at people who are just changing the way they live, the way they feel, they deal with, the way they deal with their spouses or partners, the way they act against their children. He said himself, he becomes violent. He becomes angry. He is quickly irritated. And he has all these symptoms, and he can trace it back to when he was 32 years old and he got bullied around by colleagues that eventually caused him to just not be able to work anymore. This is not an uncommon situation, is it? No. But here's the point, Jacobus. You have analyzed and act. If I could give a degree now in psychiatry or psychology, I would have given it to you. Ninety-nine percent of the the doctors I have trained could not answer that question that you asked him. You went back to the root cause. You found exactly the precipitant. It was real. It was a physical ailment, and it had psychological consequences. And in turn. You alleviated some of his anxiety to realize he's not alone, yeah. but there was something to do. And this is something the audience has to understand. You are not alone when you are in depression. You may feel alone. You will be isolated. You will feel helpless and hopeless. You will be distant from your friends. You'll be distant from your family. 
you will feel as if the world doesn't understand you, and there's this heavy cloud that's pushing you down, 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 and you cannot get above it. In part, some of the antidepressants help that heavy cloud to get up. In a lot of part, nutritional biochemistry can really bring that cloud up, but you have to be able to look to something and connect to say, I need help. And one of the things that people don't do in our society is say, I do need help. Every day today, this morning in Bozeman, I know that there's thousands of people going to church, and I know they're praying, and rightfully so. And they're praying quietly, saying, Jesus or God, give me a, something to help me out. That's important. But the second part of the statement is you have to help yourself. And in order to help yourself, it doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up. It means that you have to think a little bit out of the box and ask a Jacobus. Go into a store and ask him, what do you think? And ask some of the other friends who had help. What did you do? Well, I went to this guy, Dr. Newstead. Uh, he's a partner with Dr. What's his name? Pesnesnik, or I don't know his last name. <laughs> you know? And I read this book. And you look it up in the Internet. And the point is, there's always a way out. But society has failed. We are failing now not because we were the greatest country, but because we thought we were the greatest country, but we never took care of our own people. We took care of the aggrandizement of our power, our military. We took care to make sure the wealthy were wealthy, that we had money in our pockets. We had three cars, a, a boat, and two houses, a sea house, and now we pay the price. Yeah. This is not socialism. I'm an outright capitalist. But what I'm saying to you right now is you need emotional help because the times are bad and they're getting worse. And unless you start to take care of your health, number one, you can't take care of anybody. You, even when you say, look, I have no money, you have something that you're able to go and give in order to get help, whether it's going into Jacobus' store, seeing John Newstead, or seeing your therapist, or, or someone where you can talk to. And there's some very good clinics here that really do provide free services, even a pastoral counselor who's trained. But the point of fact is the responsibility goes to the individual because society will not bail you out. The state will not bail you out. The federal government will not bail you out. And if you believe that the federal government or anybody else will take care of you better than yourself, Forget then that's real self-delusion. That's right. Now, and that's the danger that you get trapped into. Things will not just get improved by thinking or wishing that they get improved. You really have to think about it. You know, I've seen some of the patients. I haven't seen them personally, but I went over some of the records anonymously of all the workers who are in the construction in Bozeman. First thing they come in is doc. Yeah, I have a cut and a pain, but, you know, I've got back pain. So John does prolotherapy, which he can explain to you. And they thank him because what they want to know is not a detailed analysis of their dynamics. They want to go back to work. And most people in Montana would just want to get back to work if they have work. And if they can't work, you lose your self-esteem. And when you lose your self-esteem, you lose your identity. And when you lose your identity you take it out on other people. That's right. And when you take it out on other people, you take it out on the people who are closest to you, your wives, your children, your friends. And that's when you know and your friends know that you're in trouble. And so, it's often the obligation of friends to say to somebody, look, you're in trouble, you're depressed. And many of the times, 
If you're an alcoholic, which we have a huge alcoholism problem in Montana, despite what everybody says, there's denial. And denial is not a river in, in, in Egypt. Denial is really the ability of saying, no, I don't have a problem. I just drink a few beers a day, but I can handle my job. No. Alcoholism isn't about the number of bottles you drink. It's the requirement that you need to drink. That's my basic definition. If you need to drink, whether it's two, three bottles or a glass a day or whatever it is, and binge drink on the weekend, you are an alcoholic. And to get out of that trouble, you're going to have to see somebody or you go to AA where they do help them. Yeah, there is help. Perfect record. Huh? There is help. It is just that people need to know where to go. And sometimes it happens because you talk to a friend who can say, hey, there is a place where you can go and go from there. But we have to go to the news. Uh, Dr. Pachanik, uh, Dr. Neustadt with us news as well. News is too depressing. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have two things. When we come back, we still have a caller on hold who would like to get in touch with you. And there is a, there is a gentleman who sent an email to Dr. Neustadt. So we'll be right back. Caller, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Your name, how can we help you, please? Just a toothy grin. Oh. Yeah. Well, did you lose a tooth? No, it seems like getting on the show today has been like pulling teeth. I've been on uh, for almost an hour off and on. Uh, but, well, we uh, love your dedication, Daniel. Thank I, you so much for doing so. I won't. It shows you that the topic is too intense. we got to keep going. All right. Uh, so speaking of the uh, plight of psychiatrists, yeah. I'm uh, quite impressed by psychiatrist uh, David R. Hawkins, Marquette University. Uh, the bestseller he had was called Power Versus Force, the treatise on uh, how uh, power is good, but when we start using uh, force, we're getting into a problematic area. Apparently, he doesn't make a clean duality on these, uh, that one is good and one is bad, because he does repeat uh, what Marshall Rosenberg, the expert in empathy, called use of protective force. Uh, Hawkins said that medicine had a pretty good system of containing the mentally ill in the 50s, but in the 60s, uh, the mentally ill were released to the streets, thinking that the uh, and the freedom of the streets could heal them. Do you think that there's any use in you know, those that are aggressively depressed that could be suicidal and uh, homicidal uh, with the uh, use of protective force? Well, well I think it's a very good question. Let, let me rephrase it the way I understood it. What you said is correct. Uh, Psychiatry had at certain parts, uh, we had the ability, I don't say the power, because power is very ethereal. We had the ability within the legal structure to hospitalize people who were suicidal or homicidal and were dangerous to themselves. That's the McNaughton ruling. McNaughton was the man who assassinated uh, uh, McKinley, President McKinley, and he was insane. And, and, and the criteria for incarceration at the time that I was a psychiatrist and practiced in the 80s and 90s was a danger to self, danger to others, and, and psychotic. Now, many people fit that criteria. In the state of Montana, unfortunately, because we don't have a psychiatric system or community mental health system, we put them in prisons, and, and, and we have excellent prisons, by the way. It, it, uh, I think uh, the state should be proud of that, but we should not be proud of the fact that we don't have the ability to really put away some of the people who require for their, not put away, but give them a chance to rehabilitate, be placed on drugs, sometimes against their own will. This was the issue that we had to fight with the lawyers, that very many people who are schizophrenic will not comply with our uh, uh, our uh, medication, so we had to inject them. Now, 
this is not a balance between legality and freedom of mental health. This was an issue that we were eviscerated of our power and our ability to do anything, so we literally let them into the streets. It wasn't the power of the streets that was really the dynamic. It was a law that came in under John F. Kennedy, which established community mental health centers as a way of decentralizing the psychiatric hospitals. Not all psychiatric hospitals were great, so I don't want you to think that I espouse psychiatric hospitals as the solution to everything, nor community mental health. But you have a combination in Montana, for example, what I learned about the correctional system, where you really rehabilitate those people who have problems. Now, I'm not talking about criminals. But if you have a person who's, who has, is psychologically impaired and cannot work for him or herself, you really have to bring in not only medication and some therapy, you've got to dedicate time and resources, and that is occupational therapy, recreational therapy. We have all kinds of therapies that can reinstitute an individual back into society. But instead what happened, and I think your point is excellent, is we threw them into the streets. In this case, unfortunately, the police, God bless them in Montana and Bozeman, they're picking up people who don't belong in the, in the jail. They can't hold them in the jail because they know, and I know, and a bunch of other people know, they don't belong in jails. They belong in a, in a place where they can be properly processed, properly treated, properly evaluated with psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers, and that means a commitment of resources from the state. I'm not indicting anybody. I'm just simply saying it does not exist. And as long as we continue to focus just on building more jails and not addressing the underlying issue in Montana that we have the highest alcoholism rate, we have the highest meth rate in the country, and we have suicide rate, the highest rate, we have a social problem that can't be just treated by Dr. Neustadt or any of the other excellent physicians who are in Bozeman and elsewhere in Montana. They're overloaded. So you hit it right on the head. We need effective legislation that addresses the issue in an appropriate, non-political or bipartisan way, which can allocate the proper amount of resources and reevaluate what it is we have to do for the patient. Thank All you right. very much. I better get out of the way because here comes Chuck. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Have a good Sunday, and thanks again for your patience. All right, Dr. Channing, I got a couple of questions for you. Bear with me. Sure. Um, first question is going to lead into my second questions, but... In a nutshell, what is your definition of addiction? Addiction is the necessity to have more of a substance in order to achieve the initial response. In other words, if you can't sleep and you're taking Ambien or you're taking a Tamazepam and, and 30 milligrams can hold you only for a few weeks, then you take 60 milligrams, then you take 90 milligrams, so addiction is the compulsion to repeat the same type of behavior until the point that you can no longer help yourself. Very good. All right. Now this leads into my next question. Never, yeah. nowhere have I seen any literature, any information stating that antidepressants can be addictive. And I want to tell you, from personal experience, they can. There's a place... Sure. for antidepressants if you have someone yes. that's so deeply depressed that right there's there's no light they're in a deep dark hole well from experience um and i'll tell you uh, right now i'm on the medication effects and i would right. like to get off effects but they're addicting 
if I do not take one within 24 hours of my last pill, um, I get very lightheaded, um, very similar to vertigo. And it's right. very disconcerting. Um, it's hard to do uh, your job when you're just getting these head rushes and um, vertigo. Chuck, you know what? Let but, me explain something. Look at the man opposite you. You see that man, John, Dr. Yeah. John Newstead? He well, will get doctors... you off of it in the proper... Uh, uh, no, I'm serious. In a way, uh, Fixer and all the antidepressants are addictive. We don't use that word because the pharmaceutical companies would hate to think that they're they back are. in the addiction. Because of course they're in the addiction. Every medicine can be addictive if you keep on using it, and this is the problem that doctors have in treating pain. And I, I can't blame them all because they're not trained in how to deal with pain. John Newstead understands it very well. Why do you think Dr. Newstead said very clearly in the beginning of the show, please do not go off your SSRIs or antidepressants? The reason he said that well, was if happen. you go off of it, you will get what we call a rebound phenomenon. That's what happens in addiction. If, so, uh, if, let me give you an example in, in, in alcoholism. There are a lot of workers in Mount Bozeman, Montana, who have to drink beer before they go to work. They know who they are. Because if they don't drink beer and they're in the construction business, their hands will, trem will tremble. And they can't work either whether they're setting major lumber construction or the, what we call fine uh, uh, carpentry. If they don't drink that beer, they will not get through the day. Now, the reason why is because they're addicted. And one of the worst addictions that I have had to deal with was delirium tremens. And we don't often know as a doctor in an emergency room, and God bless the people in Bozeman, uh, deaconess who are in the emergency room, because they don't, you don't always tell the truth when you go in the emergency room. And suddenly yeah. you've got spasms, you've got high fever, and what happens is we find out by chance that somebody's addicted to beer or alcohol, because nobody's going to say to you, I'm an alcoholic. At the same time, what you said was correct, Chuck. You have to come off of the effects in, in a way that decreases the addiction. Now, everyone knows in medicine, or I know in medicine very well, that those drugs are addictive. I don't care what the FDA says. I don't care what the pharmaceutical companies say, because they have too much money involved. But Dr. Newstead said it up front very clearly. He has to titrate you. That means, means he has to take it off very slowly while at the same time he supplants you with nutraceuticals or whatever is required in order to build up your immune system and your other biochemical factors where they can uh, convert into epinephrine or serotonin. So they are addictive, and there is a way out. And that's the key for people to understand. There's always a way out. And what you did, Chuck, is, and I admire you, you admitted what you had. You explained it to the audience, as I explained the problem. And in return, the answer is right across the way. There's Dr. Newstead. Well, I got and his card. Has, <laughs> well, you got to walk in. You know, many people have to understand that the worst thing in the world you can do is to say, I don't have it. There's no problem. I can handle it. Yeah, that, that's a natural reaction. But in my world, if you don't say, I've got a problem, and I, I need help. I need help. People can't say that. Let me give you the profile of suicide. Women tend to make suicidal gestures, which often are a way of asking for help. 
Now, I understood, unfortunately, a woman in the Bozeman Chronicle killed herself with carbon monoxide. Yeah, That's tragic. Yeah. But I will suspect that if you do what we call a postmortem, postmortem forensic analysis, that there were signs beforehand that showed she was depressed, that she was angry at her children, that she was irritable. You know, you can be smart Monday back quarterbacking, but the truth is there is a field called postmortem psychology. But my point is this. Women will tend to act out in a way where either they've cut their wrists, and that was very fashionable uh, among the high school students. They call themselves emus, E-M-U. They think that's a very cute uh, concept to be a borderline patient, and then they get back in, and that's the way they feel something. The new generation wants to feel something, so that's why they take drugs. That's why they take uh, ecstasy or methamphetamine. The worst diagnosis for me and not being able to pick up a suicide patient is the man who's in his 50s and is an alcoholic. And when I, that type of man will quietly go off, takes care of his family, says very little, goes off and blows his brains out. They're quick, they don't say a word, and that's where we lose the patient. And unfortunately, physicians and, and, and mental health workers, but more importantly, you know, the best mental health workers are the Jacobas, the bartenders know, the hairdressers will be effective mental health. They're the first ones to pick up something. And they're the ones to say to the patient, look, go seek help. And the last words I'll often hear is, well, I don't need it. I can handle it myself. My own agent, I remember in, in the movie business, the book business, 30 years ago, I went up to see him, and he had an empty desk, closed his blind, looked at me and said, uh, I'm fine. I said, uh, Gary, you're, you're sick. I have to commit you. He said, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm too busy. I'm doing I said, Gary, you need to go. A week later, he blew his brains out, went home because he had financial problems. Now, we're entering a period where literally the financial problems get worse and worse. People say, well, that's nice what Dr. Chenick said. You know, he's talking about psychiatry and all that. But I got a real problem. And the real problem I have is I don't have a job. And that's a real problem. So how do you deal with that problem? Number one, you have to say, okay, I don't have a job. Now, you can look at it and say that's the end of my life because I don't have any self-esteem. I don't know what else to do. I'm a pipe fitter, a construction guy. Or you can look at it and say, you know what, maybe it's time for me to look at something else, and I have a capability to do something that nobody else has. And you want to know something interesting? Sociologically, our best companies came during the fields of depression when we had no money. UPS, 1920s and 30s. Microsoft came out of the Depression era. Google came out of the Depression era. All our major companies which had nothing to do with the ongoing economy, came through in these times. And what I'm saying to the people of Montana is that you have an incredible ability to be creative, proactive, and maybe this is a blessing in disguise when you don't lose a job, when you have a job loss for a while. Because now is the time to assert yourself as an entrepreneur. Maybe you succeed, maybe you don't. But at least you become... You attempt to be something that you want it to be. And the one axiom I've always said to my patients is you will never regret what you do. You only regret what you have never done. And oh, when you wow. die, nobody's going to ask you, did you earn 50000 or 40000 They're going to say, did you really enjoy what you did? And that's what you got to answer to. So in these distressed times, 
don't look to the government, don't look to others, look to yourself and ask yourself, what do you really want to do for yourself? And this is the naked truth. If you bullshit yourself, you're going to bullshit yourself, doesn't matter. But if you have a talent and you have a desire, this is the time to do it. Because now is the time to put yourself forth and reassert yourself and make the mistakes of life that you were afraid to do when you had the comfort of what we call the, you know, the good at life. That was a delusion. Now is the time to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to bootstrap myself. I'm going to take some time out. I'm going to build something in my carpentry store. I remember going to the farmer's market. I, I don't mean to embarrass this individual, but I walked through the farmer's market on Saturday. Why do I like the farmer's market? To me, it's an entrepreneurship of Montana. It's a glorification of what people do that's so unusual. And one particular part, not only the arts and crafts, which is phenomenal, but there was this one lady who was selling her father's airplanes made out of Coca-Cola cans. And I said, this is brilliant. And I said, well, how did he end up doing it? Well, he found he had no time and whatever, but he was building these little planes with Coca-Cola cans. So don't tell me that in a time like this, Montana doesn't know what to do. It's time for Montanans to say to themselves, what do I want to do? How can I help myself? And how can I build a business? And how do I need help and go out and get it? So this is the golden opportunity, maybe the silver lining in the worst of all times, but it can be the best of all times. As Jacobus said, without being, and I'm also a refugee, so I didn't come, I wasn't born in this country. I came to this country to enjoy the freedoms and the ability to understand one thing, to fail. Not to succeed, but to fail. I failed so many times here, it's almost embarrassing. And that, you know, I've had 66 rejections on my first book. You only have four publishers, so you can imagine what I had to do. Yeah. But this is the time that Montanans have to say, okay, I got an opportunity. Jacobus started something else than what he was. I started a company other than what I was. I mean, I'm sure you did, Chuck, too. Many of us have many careers. Now is the time to say, okay, what can we do for ourselves? Let's get through the depression. If I need help on the depression, let's get some medication. Let me go see somebody and let me go forth and define myself the way only I can do it. And if I need the help of my family and friends, this is when you get together. But don't expect something miracle to happen from the outside. It's not going to happen. Steve, right. let, me, uh, let me get back to uh, the addiction of the antidepressants. Anyways, yeah. the last time I went to my doctor and mentioned how the antidepressant isn't working very well anymore, um, and I'd like to get off them, but these side effects. And um, because the antidepressant wasn't working well anymore, the doctor's answer was, well, let's just double your dosage. Instead of doing 75 milligrams, do 150. Well, I haven't done that because I'm having a heck of a time getting off just 75. Right. So, well, this is what John can answer for you because he gave you part of that answer earlier. John, you want to talk about the FDA and the... Uh... Well, what we can do is maybe uh, come back on that one because we are hitting a break. And then we can talk with Dr. Neustadt also about uh, an email that came in from Brian, who has a question for him that is more uh, biochemistry related. 
And so uh, let's let's do that, and then uh, we'll just keep moving on with uh, with this very 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 exciting program. I just really appreciate both of you with your information, insights, and practicality. It's uh, it's very necessary, and uh, especially in this state and in this day and age. Please stay tuned because we all will be right back. Uh, there is a question, an email question from Brian for Dr. Neustadt. He said, without going through a complete series of testing to determine the exact deficiencies for breakdown of processes, is there a safe group of supplements which can be taken, which will not further any existing imbalance and would generally help most individuals with depression issues? Are there, are there supplements which should be avoided which might create further imbalances with regards to depression? Dr. Neustadt. That's an excellent question and one that's difficult to give a um, sort of overarching one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, let me start with that with supplements that people should avoid that may aggravate problems. Uh, taking a supplement, uh, for example, uh, tyrosine as an isolated amino acid, uh, or uh, a 5-HTP as an isolated dietary supplement while you're on uh, either of the classes of, of antidepressant medications such as uh, uh, Prozac or Effects or any of the medications. If you take those amino acids, it may uh, cause complications. If you're not taking the right dose, um, you really should do that under the care of somebody who's, who's knowledgeable uh, in, in combining nutrients with medications. In terms of dietary supplements that people can use safely, those are two that are safe to use if you are not taking any medications uh, and are suffering from depressions. And those target the two pathways um, that I was talking about earlier, uh, the dopamine pathway and the serotonin pathway. Uh, that is tyrosine and 5-HTP, or you can even now get tryptophan uh, uh, over the counter again as well, then you want to be on a good multivitamin, just uh, a very good multivitamin. Um, Dr. Pachenik and I formulated one that's at Jacobus's store called Supreme uh, Multivitamin for men and women. Yeah. Uh, and I know you have others, Jacobus, that, that you may want to recommend specifically to, to people. But uh, in addition to that, you may need extra B vitamins, a mm -hmm. B complex vitamin supplement, and a good um, Mitofort is another formula that helps with that uh, basic energy pathway. It has carnitine and lipoic acid, so you can use your fats and your, your um, uh, sugars uh, more effectively. Mm -hmm. And that would probably be a, a basic support protocol that I would recommend in terms of nutrients. Is it going to fix the majority of people? Um, I am... I don't, I don't, sure. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I hesitate saying it will because when I do the testing and work with people, it's, it's so customized. I've never had two, two, two treatment plans that are, that are exactly the same uh, because it also involves lifestyle uh, changes um, and dietary changes are also important. Again, if it's just the emphasis is I'm going to take, you know, pills and powders for the rest of my life, well, it's really no different than the pharmaceutical paradigm of, you know, here's your drug, good luck, you're just going to take this for your rest of your life. It doesn't really get to, let's correct the underlying cause, let's establish, reestablish the foundation of health with long-term. My philosophy is the foundation of long-term health really is diet uh, and lifestyle. 
And the pills and powders are there to promote health, correct any deficiencies, get people feeling better, increase the storage amount of stored nutrients that you have in the short term while people are on programs that I create. I create three-month month programs for people, um, track their progress. See, that is, in my opinion, what you bring up, that to me is key. I think that too many people go to a physician, whoever that is, get one treatment, get one shot at it, and don't even are not being told that these physicians are there for them. That the physicians are there to hey, I'll follow your progress. Come back in three months. You know, let's do a follow up visit. Let's Actually, talk I do about three this. three follow up visits during that time. We can make any modifications. So I'm working with them every time talking about diet. People really are not eating optimally. Uh, reestablishing the foundation for health. And then seeing if we can pull most or all of the dietary supplements off at the end of the three-month program and see if they can primarily maintain their benefits with diet and lifestyle. And it's an extremely, extremely effective approach. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that Brian says uh, in his email, is there indeed any other uh, supplements? Um, Fish oil. There has been good research done on yeah, fish oil I would agree. Uh, with uh, especially the EPA, high EPA. And my understanding is if you do more than 1,500 milligrams of the EPA part of the fish oil, I mean, anytime you buy fish oil, you have your EPA, your DHA. But my understanding is that tests have been done, clinical studies, that 1,500 milligrams or more of EPA may also give you benefits in depression symptoms. I would do a minimum of three three grams of the combined EPA and DHA a day. However, the caveat is if it's bipolar, manic depressive disorder, uh, those fatty acids from fish can throw somebody into a manic episode, and I've seen it clinically. Interesting. And And it is documented in the literature, so you have to be careful with that. But if you want a basic recommendations for a basic supplement program, uh, if you've got your pens out, write it down. Jacobus has these in the store. Uh, I would say if you're a man, it'd be the Supreme Multivitamin. If you're a menstruating woman, it'd be the Supreme Femme because that has iron in it. Uh, added onto that would be Mitofort, uh, a B-complex vitamin. And then I would do uh, Mag-10, which is a combination product of magnesium and CoQ10. And I don't think you carry that Jacobus, no. but well, you can do have magnesium in. and yeah. CoQ10, mm-hmm. or you can get it in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would do a good whey-based protein powder, and I would recommend a fish oil. I know you have Nordic Naturals, which is a great fish oil, mm-hmm. uh, and I would recommend that. That would be it. However, if you're looking at a cost issue, you don't want to do the, co- the because of the cost of the testing, uh, which isn't cheap, uh, the basic panel for... Depression that I usually run is uh, $950, just to let people know. It does a full amino acid powder. It looks at all the, the energy production pathways. It looks at the neurotransmitter pathways, liver detoxification pathways. It's got a 90-food allergy panel on it mm-hmm. uh, where about 200 variables are tested and reported. Um, however, being on the supplement regimen just as a shotgun approach that I recommended, in the long run, people generally are going to end up spending a lot more money and possibly being frustrated because they're not getting the long-term benefits of that. As a patient told to me, said to me recently, she said, well, uh, I, I said, you know, the testing's not cheap. And she looked at me after we d- talked about it, and she said, well, you know what? Being sick, sick is really expensive, too. It is. It is. It is uh, really expensive, and uh, we need to make sure that politically we somehow there is going to be some benefits or um, uh, rewards for people who 
are doing the best to take care of the health. And right now, it is only seen as a luxury. But we, yes. Yeah, I just want to say on that just quickly. Yes. Um, for people who have health insurance, what I do recommend they, they, they consider is consider a high deductible health insurance plan, uh, catastrophic coverage, uh, high deductible. Then you can also open a uh, health savings account, and that'll give you the flexibility to spend your pre-tax dollars on the health care that you want to spend it on, not what an insurance company is dictating what you do. Okay, good point. Let me just make a comment about the, 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 there's a dynamic that exists in chronic diseases, all chronic diseases, depression being one of them, whereby some people actually, that becomes normal for them. Being sick becomes normal and it becomes a family dynamic and a social dynamic that people get comfortable with. There are people out there who are uh, really suffering from disease, but it's difficult for them to reach out and actually want to make a change because that being, si being sick to them is normal and it breaks apart their entire social fabric. And I, that's a minority of people. It's a minority of patients I see, but it is a real and documented dynamic that people need to be, be aware of, that there's a dynamic that occurs when people are chronically sick, that that illness actually provides some sense of safety and security for the person. Mm -hmm. And it is something that is chronic for them, so it has become so much part of their life that it is even harder for themselves to recognize it. We yeah, need other right. people. And, and so I have a question, Dr. Pachanik. Uh, there was a call who said, if there is a situation in a community whereby we know, as we observe somebody in need who is schizophrenic, who is dealing with health issues, mental health issues, and you try to help, you try to intervene, you try to assist, and this person has clearly said, if you try to help me or intervene, I will either run or I will commit suicide. How do you go about it in this community, Dr. Pachanik? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. That's actually one of the big biggest problems we have in psychiatry. If they intervene, the schizophrenic is a danger to himself and could be a potential danger to others. It's a very hard situation. The only thing you can do is try to explain that the way to help or the, the way to deal with an issue that you won't get into further problem is to see either community health center where they can go to free health care. But we don't have many alternatives, not in this community. Huh. Unfortunately, you know, it, it's a burden that a citizen who cares has to bear, but it's unfortunate we don't have a place to put them in. Eventually, hello? Yes. yes. Uh, am I? No, there was somebody, uh, d that person hung up. Uh, yeah, push that button. Thank Eventually you. what happens is that that person, the schizophrenic, will be picked up by the local police in Bozeman, and they know pretty well that that individual unless he or she creates some problems, can't be picked up for any disturbances or a misdemeanor. So it resorts back to the social system where we're not equipped to handle it, and that's the tragedy of the situation. And I think the caller really hit on the very essence of the problem. Well, if I may interject, I'm so limited in helping that at best if we try to bring him into the emergency room where somebody can help them in the ER, that they'll escape. Let me, and let me, if they do... Let me add a little uh, another variable, um, Steve, to this because uh, Jacobus did mention a little bit more. There's a, some more information here about. Yeah, and this I don't person. know how much I can say about it, oh, but this person okay. happens to be a. Uh, 
this person happens to be a uh, there are children uh, involved is there's two children involved uh, uh, and the person is a non-combat veteran and um, is is living uh, does not have a, a, a solid roof over uh, over their head you with us uh, at this point social services they should be able to intervene and basically said that this individual is not whoever it is, is not qualified to take care of the children. And I hate to have the state impose themselves, but this is where the children's health becomes in danger. And as a non-combat veteran, this individual is also allowed the privilege of going to VA. But unfortunately, we don't have a very active VA, and it's, it's long, it, it takes a long way to get there. We're, we're understaffed. There are those who are running around in this community and in any community in the United States who are have some kind of an addiction, whether some kind of an abuse, where there is some kind of, of low self-esteem, where we have children who have become addicted to methamphetamine, addicted to sex, addicted to alcohol at a very young age because they're lost in what they want to do and they don't understand and they are turning to all kinds of means in order to get uppers. And so we are, we are dealing with a situation that I don't think we have a full grasp on. Caller, good morning. Thanks for your patience. Thank you for tuning in. Your name, how can we help you, please? Jacoba? Yes. Dan. Dan, thank you, Dan. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I just wanted to mention you were talking about uh, addiction to the antidepressant drugs, and you may have gone over this, but uh, the anti depression drugs, whether they're SSRIs or SNRIs, over time downregulate the uh, number of receptors on the brain cells. And so when you try to withdraw from those drugs, it can cause all sorts of adverse symptoms. So what, uh, you know, Chuck experiences, people can get uh, electric shock symptoms. Uh, so it can be very difficult, and so the biochemical approach is really the very best way to go. And it's uh, good that you're right on target with that, John. Oh, thank you. And, and, and just so listeners know, yeah. this is Dr. Dan Carter calling in, also a naturopathic physician here in town at uh, um, Alpine's Physicians Health Center. Is that correct? correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's correct. And also very knowledgeable in uh, these matters. Thank you, Dan. Well, thank, thank you, you, Dan. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon in a few weeks. You bet. <laughs> All right. This, uh, this topic, uh, I am so excited. I'm so excited to, to, uh, to know about it. And I, I really, and I think the doctors are agreeing with me, there is a lot of information out there, folks. If you have an hour or two, go to the library, read a book, uh, talk to somebody that you like, and, and get inspired again to find yourself. But we thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and uh, for supporting this program by listening. We, uh, we wish you all the best. We wish that you have a wonderful winter coming up with, uh, we know many of you have the, the blues. Uh, Dr. Pachanik, all the best to your work. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you and Gesundheit. Gesundheit <laughs> to you as well. And Dr. Neustadt, all the best with your thank work. Thank you very much. Make it count. We'll talk to you next week, Sunday again, for another edition of Gesundheit with Jacobus. Have a good week.